And all the people said, Amen. 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 Thank you. It is a uh, joy to share in our worship this morning. Uh, majesty early on, majesty again in the um, offertory, these uh, celebrations of Jesus and the uh, pleasure and honor to be drawn into his presence. Uh, it, is, it is a good day. If you'll excuse me this morning for the little bit of sensational title, if you look that far in your program, I suppose it's a little cutesy as I look back on it. But the idea is something like this. <clears throat> Some of these very fundamental things that are familiar to us, if we just understood them, we would see that they offer a revolutionary new perspective on life. They're life-changing. They're world-changing. So much of that world we inherit. We live off the capital of other people who have traveled before us and we see so much of this Christian story as it's unfolded before our eyes. And we somehow forget how fundamental, provocative, remarkable, unique these perspectives are. I'd like, if you would, to share with you from the Ten Commands. I ask you to pay special attention to the very beginning verses they seem like introductory matter. They're not the Ten Commands. They're just getting there. But let me warn you, they are fundamental. For one thing, they, I think, correct our common misapprehension about how Hebrew people lived and maybe distort in an exaggerated form our own theology. This image that somehow this onerous God spoke to the Hebrews and said, I've got a long list for you. You're not going to make it. I can tell you right now at the beginning, you're not going to make it. But if you could somehow make it through this checklist, at the end of which, and you still are in good shape, then you could be my people. Then I'll save you. Well, that's not what God ever said, or really, if you read the fine print, hardly ever what the Hebrews said. Instead, what you see here is a remarkable display of grace. This text doesn't say, if you can make it through all ten, then you'll be my people. This text says, hey, I've rescued you. I'm the one who saved you. I've already brought you out of slavery. I've been behind your project all along. Now I've rescued you. Now be my people. Here's the life that is fitting for me. The tone is very different. You're not to live this way because you think if you somehow can perform, you will be saved. You're to live this way because God, by his grace, has brought you to this place where he's already rescued you and shown you life. Notice as well our image about law in general, and these laws share in its wake we so often think as libertarians and individualists, my goodness, this law really restricts me. I hope it's worth it. Maybe I'll get rewarded in heaven. As if though I'm going to have to give up so much here on earth to follow these onerous rules, restrict my freedom, and so on. But the truth is this. In this context, and even more clearly in Deuteronomy, where these are repeated, the image is this. 
This is not a deal God strikes with you. To forfeit life's great pleasures in order to know Him. These are instructions how to live life maximally. You're not to give up your freedom to follow these rules. Get this straight. If you follow these rules, you'll have more freedom. You'll know more about life and its pleasure and its flourishing, not less. These are the guides for living in dynamic covenant with this great God. So if you will, follow as I read the Ten Commands. Then God spoke these words. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is uh, in heaven or above or in the earth below uh, or that which is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them and worship them, for I, Yahweh, am your God. I'm a jealous God, and I punish the children of iniquity to their parents, to the thirds and fourth fourth generations, to those who reject me. But show steadfast love to the, can it be, the thousandth generation, to those who love me. And keep my commandments. This is the wooing of a great God that we would be loyal and love him and comply and follow his instructions. You shall not make wrongful use of my name, the Yahweh, for the word Yahweh, the name, will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor. And do all of your work. But on the seventh day is the Sabbath. You dedicate it to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male and female servant, your livestock, the alien residents in your town. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. But rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that your days will be long in the land that the Lord God uh, God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not cover your uh, neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female servant or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to to your neighbor. This humbling, humbling sort of uh, declaration, again, is said in the ca- and couched in our Bible story this way. They have seen God work. They had fallen prey to the one of the great and powerful world empires and one of the truly powerful emperors in all of the world. That emperor had declared his will. That emperor who, by the way, was worshipped and honored by his own people as a god himself. Pharaoh had declared his purpose. And he would make of this people a people of slavery. But God will not 
let that pseudo-God and that emperor, that king or that ruler, claim his people. He claims this people for himself. And he delivers them from slavery. This relationship, and it is a relationship, not just a bare contract, a covenant, it's a binding agreement, is one that is, if rightly carried out, would, would see on the response of its recipients of all of this grace a, a corresponding love and admiration and appreciation for God, a reverence of God, and living out the commands is done in that love. Now these commands are a little daunting. We re return to them with maybe just a few observations this morning about the first ones. And it goes this way. You shall have no other gods before me. Now let me tell you, I've been on a journey with this commandment for a long, long time. But now I am convinced that we wrongly understand it in our tradition. I bear witness to this. There are very well-informed people who disagree. But here is my witness as what the scriptures mean. We have read this command and heard this command and applied it to say that you shall have no other gods before me. This, in the barest of terms, means that loyalty to God comes first before loyalty to anyone else, any other God. Hmm. And that's how it's been read consistently. But I would suggest to you this word before this preposition doesn't in its natural Hebrew reading suggest priority. It's a spatial image. And what's being declared here is this. God is saying to his people, I want you to understand this. When it comes to me, I don't have any other gods in front of me. There are no gods looking at me. I'm not in the concert or college or senate or assembly of the other gods. Almost all of Israel's neighbors pictured their god as one of many gods. So many gods. Gods of cosmic force like thunder or rain uh, which would irrigate uh, the, the land or this god or that god. Or gods of uh, nations or gods of tribes and clans. Then all sorts of gods on the little things that take all sorts of priorities. Gods, 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 gods everywhere. But when they figured the big things in the world were addressed, they saw the gods coming together in concert and forming a legislative sort of body. Now it was common for some nations to say it's our God who's the chief God among them all. And so when they're all together in the Senate, our God's the president of the Senate, right? He can call the shots to a certain degree. But this command is prohibiting that sort of thinking. And God says, in my standing, I don't have any other gods in my company. There are no other gods I'm not brokering with other gods. I'm not cowing down to other gods. They're not cowing down to me. There are no gods when it comes to me. No gods in front of me. It's spatial. Now, it is true, and I've spoken to you this way, that God has an entourage. 
There's a sense in which God does have an assembly in the Bible. I've spoken of that way, God's entourage. I've mentioned that to you several times along the way. But God's entourage is different. It's not made of the company of other gods. It's made of maybe most commonly called in Hebrew, the sons of God. It's God's creatures who are there as his entourage, who are there and they worship him as it's pictured in the Bible. So God has an assembly, but he's not assembled before the other gods. This God says something so blank, so profound. You just don't see this in the ancient world. This God says this, I'm not in the company of all the other gods. He has ruled, he has created with this firm and authoritative power. And now he says, there are no other gods before me. And in, fit, in keeping fit with that, in, in concert with that, he says this. Likewise, another misconception about God I need you to get straight is this. Don't make an idol. Now, the old King James, I think, captures an old rabbinic teaching. Don't make idols and then don't make anything at all, right? And, and that's not exactly what the Hebrew text says. And I think almost every modern translation you have, ESV, NIV, the New American Standard or, or whatever you have that's a modern translation will say something like what I've read to you, and that is you're not to make any idols. I don't care what kind of thing you're thinking about comparing me to. Don't compare me to any of those. So it's not saying don't make anything. It's saying don't make anything and think that you have somehow captured me or pictured me. In the ancient world, folks would make an idol but they would make an idol and somewhere along the way they would come up with a story that says the god that we're trying to honor has told me to make this idol and then when they make the idol it would be a the kind of communal focal point of worship about that god and then eventually it would be thought to represent that god and god's presence would be there somehow captured or manifest in that idol and god says this no idols. No idols. You don't own me. You don't manipulate me. You don't measure me. You don't take the measure of me. You'll know me by what I tell you and what I do for you. But you won't know me and capture me in some kind of image. And you won't collect me and represent me, and measure me in your terms. It's not the way it's going to work. Now, to sermonize a little bit on the idea of idols, you and me are folks of the modern era. We occupy a company, a community, and a world around us, many of which don't belong or believe in God at all. And idol-making, although it's all around us, if you see it, if I see it, uh, some of us feel like we've moved on from it, and we don't belong to it. But I just want to warn you, what God restricts in this idol-forbidding command is very much with us. And people who thought the world was full of gods and full of idols 
They worked feverishly, feverishly to give their tip, to pay their due, to manage this entourage. It was a little bit of magic to do this, to do that, so God would do this favor back for you. And they lived in a world of sort of speculation and constant haunting pressure. Have I done this right? Did I say this right? Did I offend God when I did this? Uh, did, did, did I do the right thing? And, and, the, and the sad thing is this. Some of you are living and seeking the true God, but you're actually working like you're manipulating idols. I got to do this. I got to do that. I, you know, did I do this right? Did I do that right? This kind of thinking just weighs down on us. It drives us out of our senses. and We become tortured versions of ourselves. And I just want to tell you, going forward with this God is different. And you don't manage your life, control your life, manipulate your life. And we may not have all the gods around, but let me tell you, if you worship and make your whole life playing the game to get security, you may never say, I'm, uh, I'm loyal to, to this God. Or, or if you want a kind of pleasure, you may say, well, I'm, I'm celebrating God, the God of Bacchus. Or if you're, if you're after love and intimacy, you, you might not ever say, I'm, in, I'm celebrating or honoring the God of Eros. But let me tell you, if you're playing this game, trying to win all these things, trying to manipulate you may think you're just the smartest person there. You may be even winning some of the matches. But I just want to tell you, that's no way to live. The way to live is to understand this. There's this God. He's above us all. But he's been stooping down to our level. Speaking a word to us. Reaching out to us. He's working in the world around us. Wooing us back. And you don't process him like you do the other gods. You do this by hearing him and trusting him. And you can't manage all these little pieces of magic. The next word is about his name. I don't have time to explain it, but let me offer just a quick paraphrase of what I think this means. It means if I could put it in Paraphrase language. God is telling his people, don't you ever trade on my name. Don't you ever take advantage of my name. Don't you all ever try to manipulate. If idolatry is not about manipulating him, this is about not manipulating anybody else with my name. So don't ever say, God told me not to pay for the parking lot. And then come in here and say, God told me not to pay for the parking lot. Whatever we say about God, we've got to make sure we're speaking sincerely. You're not to make God your private label to give you leverage. Shouldn't have a sticker up here saying, doing exactly what Yahweh tells me. As if though you're going to take an advantage, right, over everybody else. You can't trade on God, Yahweh's name. 
you must live in obedience to this God. And you don't ever manipulate him, and you don't ever use him to manipulate others. Now, there's a lot of other commands that we will not get to. You're relieved to hear at 950, right? But one more, I'll paraphrase for you. Remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. And again, I can't go to the mechanics, and it's a long, long history. You know, Christians very early on in the equation moved their day of worship to Sunday in honor of the resurrection. Most Christians followed suit. It's a long, complicated history. What we can and can do, oh, well, that's, um, again, a long, complicated story. But let me just try to paraphrase what my best understanding of this instruction would be and give you kind of the cash value of it. And it goes something like this. You are not God. And if you really want to know this true God, then you need to exercise this discipline to show that you're not God. I know you're working. By the way, no five-day work week back then. You're working all the time just to make life work in antiquity, right? But there's a day that you stop. Built into the cycle of how God created the world. And there's one day out of faith we've got to stop. And we stop and we acknowledge when we stop that the world is not mine. And the course of the world is not mine. And I'm working uh, as best I can to make sense of it and to make a, a, a go of it. And I want to even work in the world in such a way that it, 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 it pays tribute to God. But the whole project doesn't rest on me. And so, I'll stop. I'll stop and I remember. Now, re remembering's a little funny. Um, you might think, well, remembering just means I'm supposed to sit there quietly all day and just think back on things. But uh, in Hebrew, remembering isn't just bringing something to mind. It's, it's having something brought to mind and stirring you so much that stirs you to action. When God remembers, he, he acts. He doesn't just think, uh, experience a psychic recall. And so what we do on this day, then, is we prioritize worship. We do things that shows our covenant loyalty to God. And when you and I, with all the changes and the moving in the Christian tradition and moving the day and so on, but when you and I show up here and honor him and sing his praises and celebrate his hymns, I think we're getting this right. This is the recipe for going forward with a very different kind of life. You think the commandment keeping is hard enough, but I just want to tell you, it's not magic. You don't have to do all the things. That's a compulsion. That's not really true, genuine things, right? You, you just need to let go of your own efforts to tame and control and master the world. And acknowledge that there's a great God and there's no other God. Just this God. And he, we have been graced and privileged to hear his word to us.
and we hear this word and we surrender ourselves out of love and out of affection for his, his deliverance of us and his rescue of us. And we stop. We'll pick up the next day. And it's a sign that we know there's a big, great God. And we know we're not him. And so we'll stop. And on that day we stop. All the other things we're doing, we're not, we're not going to be still. We're going to do something else. We're going to make that day a day where we prioritize his worship. We're going to remember his goodness to us. Remember who he is. Celebrate who he is. And I want to tell you, if we can get these routines down, we will have a new lease on life. This morning, I urge you as people who have read much more of this story and seen so much more of it unfold, that this has a profound, profound word for you. This good and true God has sent his son into the world to reclaim us. This son has taken his place on the cross. This son has worked. Salvation, in a sense, is already accomplished. Hear this true God calling out to you in love and mercy and come to him and love him and surrender your life and your destiny. You don't have to manage. You don't have to drive successfully to the end without crashing or burning or going off course. You have to do this. You have to find your place as a worshiper for this one God and love him with all you are and obey him out of this sense of love and gratitude. This is a new way to live. Give up all these false ways. Give up all these false gods. And learn and love the one true God. It's really revolutionary. Dear Jesus, would you call us? to learn and relearn things we've heard so much in our life. We pray that we would give you honor above all else. We pray that we would never try to trick you or own you or manage you by magic. God, deliver us. We pray that we would never rule over others by taking advantage of our place with you and our knowledge of you. And we'd never speak and use your name in vain. We pray that we would learn the routine of stopping and acknowledging that we're not God and humbly acknowledging that you are. And God, may these routines relearned give us power and life and liberty, break us out of the magic and the darkness that keeps encroaching and give us clarity. Make us your people. And call us, Lord, someone here for the first time perhaps, Call us all to stop and to worship the one true God, we pray in your son's name, Jesus, amen. Would you stand?